What is off-base about Canada's foreign policy in Ukraine and elsewhere? How is the media referring to dissident positions as disinformation degrading our foreign policy further? How is the Confederation of Canada a result of the efforts of the British Empire? Can independent Canadians change the course of Canada away from the Masters project? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as we approach the 155th anniversary of Confederation, or Canada Day, we will look at the different currents affecting our national interests, which by and large reflect elite interests and not the aims of average Canadians. Our first guest, Dimitri Lascaris, joins us to talk about the position Canada has taken in geopolitical affairs and about the increasing tendency to stifle dissent in mainstream and social media. Then, in our second half hour, we have a conversation with author, journalist, and founder of Canadian Patriot Review, Matthew Errett, who discusses the deceptions around the birth of Canada as an independent nation and how that false belief continues to divide our genuine concerns and ambitions away from the forces acting supposedly in our interests. On this week's program, Not My Canada, a nation in the grip of elites, media, and the British Empire. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 24th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. There are innumerable well-documented instances of January 6th defendants not receiving due process noted in the book January 6th, authored by Julie Kelly. For example, some defendants have been held in prison for nearly 18 months pre-trial. In Dr. Gold's case, she peacefully gave a speech on medical freedom in the public rotunda. This resulted in the government violently arresting her by breaking down her door, sending 20 SWAT officers, including 12 of them with AR-15 guns, pointing at her from two feet away. Loss of freedom, loss of movement, and loss of other constitutionally protected civil rights. Such inequitable treatment based upon political preference shows the collapse of the rule of law. That comes from the article, The Loss of Equal Protection. Dr. Simone Gold of Frontline Doctors, quote, risked her career when she stood against the mainstream narrative to save lives, unquote. Posted June 21st, originally published on America's Frontline Doctors. The GMO Industry 
which is funded, propped up, and defended by the tech and chemical industries, is now seeking to replace beef, poultry, dairy, and fish with synthetic biology, cultured meat, precision fermentation, cellular-based, and gene-edited foods. Transitioning to cultured meat made from animal cells grown in a petri dish is a great reset goal for the global food industry. The aim is to control populations by creating dependence on private companies that control the food supply. The EAT Forum, co-founded by the Wellcome Trust, has developed what they call the Planetary Health Diet, designed to be applied to the global population. It entails cutting meat and dairy intake by up to 90% and replacing it largely with foods made in laboratories, along with cereals and oil. That comes from the article, The Lies Behind Lab-Cultured Fake Meat, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted June 21st, originally published on the Mercola website. During Obama's two-term presidency, 2009 to 2017, U.S. foreign policy was based to an extent on the neoconservative doctrines of the Bush White House, but it can be pointed out Obama was not as aggressive as his predecessor. Only two European states joined NATO during the Obama era, Croatia and Albania, in April 2009, and the groundwork for that was laid by Bush. In comparison, seven European countries joined NATO during Bush's tenure, but one could argue the real number was nine with Albania and Croatia. Obama did continue large-scale attempts to encircle Russia and China while expanding Washington's international drone assassination campaign. The Obama administration, quote, had brokered a deal to transition power in Ukraine, unquote, in February 2014, according to the president himself on CNN the following year. That comes from the article, The Bush and Obama Administrations, a Continuation of Policy? Russia and China hemmed in close to their borders by Shane Quinn, posted June 21st. Apparently, a crowbar was utilized to intentionally rupture the work of art, which consists of representations of several leading African Americans involved in the Underground Railroad. An article published from a Detroit Fox News report on June 2, 2021, featured quotes from Sharon Sexton and Barbara Smith of the Underground Railroad Exploratory Collective. There was uncertainty over who actually owned the monument and where the fund which was created to build the work of art was actually located. The city of Detroit and the Downtown Development Authority claimed it would investigate these questions and take action to rehabilitate the structure. However, more than a year has passed, and the monument remains in a damaged state. That comes from the article, Juneteenth commemorated while total freedom for African Americans remains elusive. Reflections on the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, and its aftermath. By Abiyomi Azikiwe, posted June 21st. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Okay, we're going to be talking to a, a prominent and incisive legal and political mind in Canada. And, and we're going to be touching on an issue uh, affecting our outlook on foreign policy. Dimitri Lascaris is my guest. He functions as a lawyer, a journalist, and an activist. He graduated from the University of Toronto Faculty of Law in 1991 and began his legal career at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. In 2004, Dimitri joined one of Canada's leading class action law firms, Siskins LLP. While there, Dimitri co-founded and led Canada's largest and most accomplished team of securities class action lawyers. In 2012, Dimitri was named by Canadian Law Lawyer Magazine as one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada. And in 2013, he was named by Canadian Business Magazine as one of the most 50 most influential persons in Canadian business. Since 2016, he retired from Siskins to devote himself to journalism, activism, and pro bono legal work. He's been a correspondent of the Real News Network and is currently a member of its board of directors. He's been active with the Green Party of Canada, and in 2020, he ran as the leadership candidate, placing second out of eight candidates with the support of 45.5% of the membership. He joins me now to, to talk principally about Canada's focus in foreign policy. Thank you for joining us again, Dimitri. It's a pleasure having you on again. The pleasure is all mine, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, next week, the Green Party announces its rules uh, and time frame for the, uh, the contest to see who leads the Green Party of Canada. This is an opportunity for groups disenchanted with all the other political parties to find a new champion. You, you did well running on um, eco-socialist values and, and critiquing the country's foreign policy in Israel, Venezuela, and other areas that's rarely, if ever, questioned on Parliament Hill anymore. Yet you chose to stay out of the race this time. Why? Well, uh, I've talked about this at some length in a, uh, a commentary on my own website, DimitriLaskaris.org, uh, because I was receiving a tremendous amount of encouragement from people around the country, some of it quite moving, actually, and I felt that I had an obligation to people who were supporting me to be uh, entirely candid about my reasons. And essentially, there were three. Uh, and the first one is that uh, you touched upon, you know, foreign policy. I happen to think uh, that we are currently experiencing the most dangerous moment in human history uh, through a series of existential trends confronting us. And the one that's most immediately of concern to me, they're all equally uh, problematic and important. Uh, but one that is most pressing of all because it could result in nuclear war uh, and the annihilation of our species is the Ukraine war. Uh, and I observed over the course of the last several months, I actually initially decided I was going to run in the leadership contest. Uh, but one of the reasons why I changed my mind was um, I observed an extraordinary degree of uh, censorship unfolding around this critically important subject. 
an unprecedented intolerance for dissenting voices uh, from the mainstream narrative. A lot of people that I have respected and viewed as you know genuine and principled progressives over the years seem to have been uh, frankly duped by the propaganda around this war. And it became apparent to me that if I was going to be running for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada, this would place quite significant practical restraints on what I could not say about this highly controversial subject. And I felt it was absolutely essential that I not be constrained at all, because there were so few people who were willing to speak the truth about this uh, extraordinarily dangerous war. Uh, the second reason uh, was that, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, I think I'm viewed, having come so close to winning the first time around, as sort of being the, the political uh, antithesis of Annamie Paul, the leader who resigned last year in very difficult circumstances. I'm viewed as being her principal rival. Uh, you know, the year uh, uh, of Annamie Paul's leadership was one in which there was a tremendous amount of strife and division within the party. And, you know, frankly, some people who I know are, you know, true allies of mine confided in me the, the, the thought, and it made quite an impression upon me that, you know, whether it's fair or not fair, if I enter the leadership contest, you know, the people who supported Anime will potentially not react well to that because they'll see me as, you know, sort of taking advantage of the opportunity uh, created by Anime's rather uh, swift departure from the leadership, and that this was not what the party needed this particular moment, that this was going to uh, you know, generate strife. And I think there's some merit to that. And I didn't want to be the cause of additional strife within the party. Um, and finally, there's the question of Elizabeth May. Uh, Elizabeth May, uh, you know, before the leadership contest in 2020 went on national television and uh, solemnly declared, and I think she was right to do this, that as a former leader, she had to be completely neutral in the leadership contest. Those were her words. I must be completely neutral. Uh, in fact, what she did after I entered the race was she aggressively interfered uh, to try to undermine my own campaign and support enemies. She admitted uh, the second half of that, that she had favored and supported enemy in a Toronto Star op-ed that she authored after enemy announced her resignation. She even used the words mea culpa when she admitted her interference in the leadership contest to support enemy. Uh, and I had hoped, uh, you know, when uh, I read that op-ed, uh, which I think was published in October of last year, that Elizabeth had learned from the experience. Uh, she had learned from having supported a candidate uh, who ultimately, whose leadership ultimately resulted in a very, very difficult year for the party. Uh, and by the way, I don't think Annamie's entirely to blame for that. I think there are other people within the party that bear responsibility for that. But nonetheless, I was hopeful that Elizabeth had learned from that experience and that she would remain neutral this time. But I was receiving numerous indications over the last several months from people who were well-placed within the party that not only was Elizabeth going to oppose my leadership again, but that she was going to be even more aggressive about it than she had been last time. And as I weighed this up, I thought, you know, I'm not going to sit there this time as I did last time and, you know, just quietly endure the attacks. Uh, I have a reputation that matters a great deal to me. Uh, this time I would respond publicly in defense of my, uh, my reputation. Uh, you know, if Elizabeth may attack me. Uh, and furthermore, if I were to do that, which is my right and something that I would feel compelled to do, uh, then again, we would find ourselves in a situation as a party where two prominent figures within the party were in open conflict. And if I managed to overcome a resistance and I felt 
yeah, it's entirely possible I could and I could win this time. Uh, nonetheless, what is it going to be like with me as a leader and Elizabeth May uh, as the leader of caucus? Uh, it's going to be a very tense, difficult situation. The media, you know, uh, will, uh, especially right-wing media, will jump all over this and try to take advantage of this uh, conflictual situation to try to discredit the party. And it just was not something that was in the interest of the party at the end of the day that I, you know, that I find myself in a position either in the leadership contest or subsequently, if I were to win the leadership contest, in a position of open warfare with Elizabeth May. Uh, and so ultimately, um, you know, I think I mentioned to you just before we started talking today that I also was concerned about the impact that this would all have on my health uh, because it's very stressful. Uh, and I certainly felt the impacts of that the first time around. Um, you know, having to deal with uh, when you're an eco-socialist, an avowed eco-socialist and a political radical, which I, I frankly am by the standards of Canadian politics, it's hard enough to have to endure uh, attacks from the right and from uh, constituencies uh, that are external to the party. But when you have to deal with these attacks from within the party and particularly from people who are well-placed within the party, the situation becomes untenable, unhealthy, uh, you know, non-productive. And so I thought when I added it all up, Michael, that at this particular point in time and in these particular circumstances, uh, you know, the, the, the best that I, the best way for me to contribute was to remain independent. Mm -hmm. Well, at least you have your own voice and you can speak freely without it affecting anyone else. That's for sure. Um, let's talk about foreign policy. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned Ukraine uh, is certainly the big issue on everybody's minds at the current moment and, and Parliament uh, voted unanimously in April to recognize Russian attacks in Ukraine as, as a genocide, which is odd considering a full forensic investigation that wasn't completed. Uh, but there's no diversity of opinion. And if there was, it, it seems like the media would not necessarily be playing the, uh, the, the, the neutral role, I guess you would say. Uh, that's how it seems. Uh, can you articulate your view on Russian actions there these last few months and, and where, in your view, our, our national policy is misguided? Well, let me just say, first of all, because you mentioned the genocide allegation, it wasn't just Russia. Of course, the parliament unanimously resolved that, again, without any independent thorough investigation having been conducted, that China, too, was uh, committing genocide. Uh, you know, and I note in that regard, so now the two principal geopolitical rivals of the United States government have been declared uh, by Canada's parliament to be uh, uh, genocide criminals. Uh, you know, we have been selling weapons, deadly weapons to the tune of some $15 billion to the Saudi autocracy, which before the eyes of the world has been committing genocide in Yemen for over five years along with its brutal partner, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, we are also involved in cooperation, economic and military and intelligence with the UAE itself. So I think it's absolutely appalling and outrageous when there's overwhelming evidence that the Saudis and the Emirates are committing genocide in Yemen, that we are selling deadly weapons to them. And we have the audacity to accuse the principal geopolitical rivals of the United States of committing genocide when the evidence in support of that allegation is far less persuasive than it is in the case of Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. Uh, so the hypocrisy here runs thick. It's, uh, it's absolutely crystal clear to me, Michael, and it should be to anybody with an ounce of objectivity 
that Canada's foreign policy is not driven ultimately by a concern for human rights and uh, respect for international law. That's blatantly obvious. I've mentioned one, one example of that, the Saudi war on Yemen. Uh, you know, you also mentioned Israel. Israel has been declared by, you know, the two principal mainstream human rights organizations in the West, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, to be an apartheid state. It has been declared by two highly respected, world-renowned Israeli human rights organizations, uh, Ibet Salem and Yeshdin, to be an apartheid state. Canadian law professor Michael Link, who was up until very recently, because his term expired, the UN Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights Situation in Palestine, also declared Israel to be an apartheid state. Our government not only will not accuse Israel of apartheid, our parliament not only will not accuse Israel of apartheid, but we're supporting Israel in every conceivable way, economically, militarily. Our government entered into an enhanced free trade agreement with Israel in 2018, days after an Israeli sniper shot a Canadian Palestinian doctor in Gaza, Tarek Lubani, in circumstances where it was quite clear that a war crime had been committed. So why do I say all of this? It's not, this is not what aboutism, I'm not playing a game of gotcha. What I'm trying to explain to the public is that when our government says that it's doing something in regard to, for example, Ukraine, in regard to, for example, China, that is motivated purportedly by a concern for human rights, whether of the Ukrainian people, whether of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, it's lying. It's obviously lying. It is not, in fact, motivated by concern for human rights anywhere in the world or uh, for respect for international law. And this opens up a question. The question is, what is its real agenda? Well, the real agenda of the Canadian government, again, anybody who's looking at the historical record clearly and objectively, is to weaken Russia. It's not about protecting the human rights of the Ukrainian people. It's about destabilizing, weakening Russia. And, you know, to the point where even uh, Biden himself blurted out you know, his advisors had to walk it back a few months ago, but he blurted out that this is exactly the goal of the United States, that Vladimir Putin has to stop being the president of the Russian Federation. So this is not about the Russian, the, the Ukrainian people. What in fact we are doing is we are dooming the state of Ukraine to decades of suffering. And the way we're currently going, Ukraine will be destroyed. It will no longer be a viable state. It will be dismembered. It will lie in smoking ruins. That is all we are accomplishing by sending our weapons over there. We are not helping the Ukrainian people. We are digging their graves. It's absolutely disgraceful what we're doing to Ukraine. I'm appalled by the complicity of our own government and their suffering. And even worse, this could easily lead to a nuclear conflict between Russia and NATO. We should not have any illusions about what's going on here. NATO is at war currently with Russia through a proxy, the Ukrainian government. We are sending, not only flooding that country with weapons which are being used to kill Russians, we are waging an economic war in Russia, which by the way, we happen to be losing, but it was intended to destroy the Russian economy. We have soldiers over there, trained soldiers, formally, that we're told they're not currently enlisted, but so what? You know, we have soldiers from the Canadian military, from the US military, from the French military, from the British military, from the Polish military, using NATO weapons to kill Russia, kill Russians in Ukraine. How can we say with a straight face we're not at war with Russia? We are. And this could easily escalate into a nuclear conflict with catastrophic consequences for all of humanity. And we're doing the same thing, Michael, in the South China Sea with Taiwan. Yeah. The insanity of this just you know, absolutely blows my mind. It's bad enough that we are creating these dangers and these risks and the suffering in Ukraine, 
we're doing the same thing potentially in Taiwan at the very same moment. Uh, you know, so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless by the incompetence and the recklessness of the West leaders. Absolutely dumbstruck. I wanted to, to bring up another point as, as we're getting close to the end, but uh, in my opinion, it, it's gotten dramatically worse than, than any time in, in my lifespan. And that happens to be with regard to the media's role in all of this. Uh, there's no room for alternative perspectives anymore. Worse, when these views are expressed, the, the speaker is accused of sowing conspiracy theories and disinformation, even potentially hate speech, uh, you know, your statement about apartheid Israel. Uh, and there's a cost to this sort of thing, right? So earlier this month, the U University of Calgary School of Public Policy released disinformation and Russian-Ukrainian war on Canadian social media. And you were apparently the only prominent uh, legal and journalistic voice uh, critiquing it, as far as I'm aware, unlike other media. Talk about this direction that the media is playing and, and how it works in tandem with foreign policy. Well, you know, it, it basically, let, let's just step back for a second. And, you know, I, I'm going to readily acknowledge that the Russian government disseminates propaganda, as do all governments. There's no government on earth that's propaganda free. Our own government and the U.S. government are amongst the worst disseminators of propaganda on planet Earth. But sure, the Russian government disseminates propaganda. Here's the thing though, Michael, there's no politician, no leader, no government in the world that always lies. There's no such thing. Because if you always lied, no one would ever believe you. Sometimes, even the most propagandistic government will tell the truth, sometimes. And the challenge for us is to figure out whether we're being told the truth, whether we're being told a falsehood or something in between. When they deprive us of access, as they've done to the Russian government's point of view, they're not educating us. They're depriving us of information that we need in order to sort through the fog of war and figure out what's really going on. Some of the information that comes out of the Russian government is false. Some of it is half true. Some of it is entirely true. And what they're doing now in the Western media is that if you happen to agree with anything the Russian government says, no matter how well supported it is by the historical record, no matter how well supported it is by logic, by facts, by international law, you are immediately labeled as a Russian shill, a propagandistic uh, uh, agent of the Russian government, even worse, potentially somebody who's on the payroll of the Putin administration. You can't, you, it's as though you have been, we have prohibited people in the public discourse from saying anything which corresponds to anything that the Russian government says, no matter how well supported it is by the evidence. And this is extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous that we cannot, as a society, uh, tolerate any longer in the mainstream media discourse uh, dissenting points of view about whether or not our policies towards this extraordinarily dangerous war are sensible policies. You know, when they when they eliminated Russia Today, it was it was breathtaking the swiftness with which Russia Today and Sputnik were removed uh, from the airwaves in Canada, and we were deprived of access of these two things. You know, Russia Today, uh, sure. Sure, it does sometimes uh, disseminate Russian propaganda, but it also has uh, historically offered a very powerful and well-grounded critique of American foreign policy and Western foreign policy. Two people who had programs on Russia today when it was removed from the airwaves in Canada were Abby Martin, an American journalist who's one of the most prolific and principled anti-imperialist journalists in the English speaking language today, and Pulitzer Prize winning former New York Times foreign correspondent, Chris Hedges. They had programs 
on Russia Today. Cornel West has appeared on Russia Today. I have appeared on Russia Today. A range of dissenting anti-imperialist voices from the West were given a platform on Russia Today, which is more than I can say for the CBC uh, or CTV or Global News. They won't give us a platform. They won't allow us to speak to the public. Well, all of that is now gone. We've deprived people of access to those voices. It was the last you know, bastion uh, for many of them. And now what we're left with a lot of us is, you know, trying to sort of work through these suppressive algorithm, algorithm of social media. Some of us have been removed altogether from social media. Scott Ritter, uh, former UN weapons inspector, who has been a trenchant critic of our policies with respect to Ukraine, was removed from Twitter. You know, this is not, we're not educating the public. What we are doing by censoring all of these voices is we're maximizing the impact of disinformation in our society. It just happens to be the disinformation that's coming from our own government, which has been given primacy, that's all. Dimitri, it's been a great pleasure hearing your voice again. Uh, maybe we'll hear more from you in the months ahead. I, I wish you well and uh, uh, yeah, hope to uh, hear from you uh, in the, the various uh, few remaining forums, media forums that are still available. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for speaking to me, Michael, much appreciated. We've been speaking with Dimitri Lascaris, a lawyer, journalist, and activist. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I would like to introduce you to a truly remarkable figure and rising star within independent media in Canada. Matthew J.L. Errett, the author, is a journalist, a lecturer, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review. He's a contributing author with the Durand Strategic Culture Foundation and Fort Roos. His works have been published in Zero Hedge, Executive Intelligence Review, Global Times, Asia Times, the LA Review of Books, uh, Sot.net, and now Highlander. Matthew has also published the book, The Time Has Come for Canada to Join the New Silk Road, and three volumes of The Untold History of Canada. Matthew is joining us now during a hectic time for him as, as it turns out to talk about the real history of the Confederation of Canada, that it was actually not the heroic act we embrace and, and celebrate on the 1st of July each year. And we will, he will take us through some other deceptions of our history as a nation. I think it's necessary to come to grips with our history so that we can proceed into the future with a, a better understanding of our country and our world. So, Matthew Irritt, welcome. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me on your show. And thank you for that very nice introduction. Um, it's a pleasure. Indeed, yeah, the, the, a lot of the work did come out of the, uh, the research that I had done for the Untold History of Canada book series. It's a four-volume series and a, a big, big chunk of that that we're going to talk about today regarding the, uh, the origins of the national policy and the myth, the imperial myths that were created and passed down generationally that still contaminate a lot of our reflexes and self-identity today. Um, were, were something that I had to sort of confront early on that dealt with that period around the end of the 19th century, um, which is kind of uncomfortable in some ways to look at, especially for a lot of Canadians who uh, thought of themselves as living in a sovereign country, you know, um, 
But when you start peeling back the layers of the onion and scratch the scab a little bit, you start seeing that there's some real uh, problematic pus, <laughs> uh, to say the least. That For sure. I, I think yeah should be should be uh, dealt with in an honest way in order to correct, make the necessary corrections that could be made still for the coming generations. Well, the dramatic events of the 1860s when we had Confederation involved not only the signing of the BNA Act, but also the purchase of Alaska from Russia and the defeat of the Confederationists in the U.S. Civil War. You connect these events and also point to the role of the British Empire in, in bringing the cause of Dominion Day together. Can you take us through what you reveal in your work? Yeah, most certainly. And yeah, this work came about sort of indirectly trying to pursue a paradox that I found troubling when I had encountered the fact that Jefferson Davies, uh, Davis, who had been the uh, the aspiring president of the Confederate States of America that were breaking free as far as far as the slave power was concerned, um, found himself in Canada after the Civil War and after the con the Southern Confederacy project had failed and the Union was maintained. He went immediately straight to Montreal, Canada, and, and he settled in, I believe it was Lennoxville. And uh, there was a speech that I had encountered of him speaking to the Montrealers, uh, demanding or, or at least imploring that they stay firm, stay true to their British principles and monarchical roots and heritage. Um, he ended up living here for many years. And, you know, a lot of his, his key colleagues, including uh, Judah Benjamin, the, one of the, the key spy masters who was the Secretary of State, or the Confederate Secret Service, uh, or the Confederate uh, States, um, ended up living out his days as a British barrister in London. Um, you know, Albert Pike always maintained he was a high-level general in the Confederacy, also had uh, many networks in Canada. He was the co-founder or the reformer of the Southern Rite Freemasonry, as well as a, a co-founder of the KKK out of the, the Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, sort of the first uh, <laughs> British imperial controlled or intelligence agency run uh, domestic terror group that was, you know, that was luckily put down by Ulysses Grant. But all of these things I found very bizarre. Why was why was he in Canada? What's going on? Why was Canada? You know, I, I read I read a book by Benjamin Sheehy uh, published, I think, in 2017 called Montreal City of Secrets as well, which documented the extensive Confederate secret intelligence operations that were active in Montreal, Toronto, Al Halifax throughout the entirety of the, the Civil War, which demonstrated that there was in the course of my research, like Wilkes Booth, John Wilkes Booth, who is celebrated as the lone gunman that killed Lincoln, was actually part of a much broader network than he even was up here in Montreal for five weeks, receiving his payment uh, orders, directives before he was redeployed back down to carry out the assassination of Lincoln. Um, in 1865. So, you know, there was a lot of anomalies that broke the narrative that I was accustomed to from school and, you know, official history books that painted a much rosier picture of Canada's role um, in world history during that period. And so I, I started to realize that you couldn't really understand Canada unless you understood the uh, complete uh, existential clash over ideas ideas of what govern, government was represented at the time by the British imperial versus American Republican uh, modes of thinking. And Britain um, had not just one Confederate uh, operation to destroy the U.S. Constitution, um, which was from the South, but it also had a northern project, a northern confederacy, and only one of the, the two 
uh, projects succeeded, and that was indeed the Canadian uh, Northern Monarchical Experiment. So a lot of these dates from the selling of, the sale of Alaska the uh, in 1867 to the uh, the 1867 BNA Act to uh, early you know the assassination of Lincoln earlier on it's it's all it's all linked to a broader global chemistry and it's it's so useful to start appreciating that top down global chemistry that sets a context for the role of Canada as a chess piece within a great game it makes so much more sense because why did what was one of the key reasons why Lincoln didn't uh, fail in the in the efforts to to maintain the union. Well, it was because of Russia, you know, like in 1863, Russia, Tsar Alexander II deployed um, a major force of the Russian Navy to the coasts of the USA uh, off of both the Atlantic and Pacific, which was an open message to the British and Imperial powers that were um, providing kind of like the way the USA provides financial and, and other logistical support to terrorist activities in Syria to break up foreign governments. That was sort of the way Britain was operating with the uh, Southern Confederacy, providing warships made by Britain, money uh, through the city of London and through Canada to help the Confederate cause. And they, they came close to going in with open military hardware uh, and soldiers. 10,000 soldiers were stationed in Canada from, you know, Brit British soldiers waiting to attack Lincoln from the north. And uh, many thousands of French soldiers were waiting in Mexico w uh, to help reinforce the, the Confederacy from the south. So that was only uh, held at bay due to the, the message sent that Russia told basically these European powers that if you do this, that's casus belli against Russia. And coming out of that, those same allies who helped tip the balance in Lincoln's favor, you know, obviously there was the fight around the greenbacks and the banking fight too, which were very important. Um, they were very certain that the example of the USA of 1865 of Lincoln, which was very different from the America, the, U, the USA of the last 40, 50 years, of course, right? Since JFK died, the USA has really lost this this older, much better tradition. So I, I don't want people to think that this is the same Amer USA at all. Um, but the, these uh, Russian patriots recognize the need to, and the, the compatibility of U.S. protectionism, um, state-backed credit through state banks for the uh, provision of uh, capital for the, the internal improvements, industrialization, especially after Alexander liberated the serfs, 25 million, right before Lincoln uh, declared the Emancipation Proclamation. So how do you make useless eaters, you know, people who had no skills, no, no higher mental powers, but living as human beasts of burden on a feudal lord's estate, how do you make useless eaters become creative uh, producers requires a, a lot of work. Like that's a huge cr logistical nightmare, especially like, you know, what you just like let all of your slaves just go free and like go into your forest now. And like all of a sudden your life is going to be good. No, <laughs> you, you know, you have to massively train people, provide them new skill sets, um, provide entrepreneurial in environments, right. Where people can now live a, a fruitful life. So that was the same problem encountered by Russia as was in the USA. And coming out of that, there was diplomatic efforts by William Seward, who survived an assassination attempt the same night Lincoln was killed, um, to solidify the sale of Alaska, which originally, when you look at those discussions, was supposed to involve not just rail, the continuation of Lincoln's transcontinental railway northward through British Columbia, upwards through Alaska, that was formerly Russian territory, sold for $7 million, and into all of Eurasia that would connect into the, the burgeoning 
Trans-Siberian Railway with branches into China, all throughout uh, Central Europe and beyond. And there's maps that were done by people like Governor William Giltman of Colorado, um, who was a, a, an undervalued hero of the Civil War, who championed the, uh, the, the creation of the Bering Strait Rail Tunnel. Um, th- you know, way back in the 1880s, he was talking about this. And so was Tsar <laughs> Nicholas II. Um, so this is a, something that was, it, it made British Columbia a very hot geopolitical territory, high, you know, high value real estate. The British realized the, the value of having Canada maintained as a British crown possession because it was sort of a, a wedge between the potential danger of a U.S.-Russia relationship. And uh, there were a lot of people who in Canada had a lot of political power who wanted Canada to take the advantage of the weakness of the British Empire in 1865 as an opportunity to either declare independence and become our own independent country finally for the first time, or even there were some that wanted to annex and, and merge with you know, the USA, which if the USA had acted with morality as it had in those days, that may not, may not have necessarily have been such a bad thing in those days. I, I'd say it's different today. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And so that you can't understand why was the, why was there such a race to create the British North America act? What, what, you know, that, that solidified, uh, Canada as a possession under the control of the British empire with a, a deep state embedded constitutionally with a privy council, um, you know, a governor general enshrined in, in our government at that same time. Um, you can't understand why Rupert's land, the private, you know, Hudson Bay territory, which was private for 200 plus years, was sold off for pennies on the dollar by an act of British Parliament to the Canadian government, expanding Canada's territory by a factor of, I think, you know, threefold. So how did why did all of this happen? And it was really to keep Canada at the time, unfortunately, as a again, a wedge, a beachhead um, for the British, for British intelligence agencies to um, undermine uh, the U.S. Russia friendship. So these uh, you mentioned two um, institutions, uh, you know, like the end of the the Civil War in the United States, uh, the British Empire. They had the Fabian Society and the World Roundtable uh, taking on the role of furthering the British Empire. And, and they had a lot of uh, ability to influence the uh, the, the Canadian public. I, I guess my, my first question is, how do you uh, how did exactly did they uh, enable things uh and and i guess mm-hmm. secondly in terms of uh any kind of a, a resistance internal to the united into, into canada i mean is there anything any kind of leadership available that's not just you know springing from britain um well that's a, that's a i'll try to i guess the simplest way i could say it because that's a that's a big topic um that that is this the the entire basis of, of, of the fourth volume of my Untold History of Canada series. Um, but yeah, the, the Fabian Society and, and Roundtable Movement, one one blossom, one was created and operated largely through the, the London School of Economics in, uh, I think it was 1878 or so. Um, I might have my, my date wrong there. Uh, the other one was created out of the wealth of uh, Cecil Rhodes, um, which also followed the Constitution of Rhodes's uh, wills. And was operated by a Canadian who was the head of the Rhodes Trust, um, you know, basket of, of money that he got by basically raping Africa. Um, he created things like De Beers, you know, a lot of the, the atrocious 
mining cartels till, still to this day uh, raping Africa have their roots in Rhodes's uh, policy. Um, he had a network of young sociopathic young boys uh, from Oxford as well, working very closely around him called um, uh, mediated by this fellow named Lord Alfred Milner. And Milner had a grouping of these boys uh, called his kindergarten, Milner's kindergarten, who became the leaders of the roundtable movement. And the roundtable was sort of a think tank component that coordinated the reorganization of the British uh, Empire in into the early 19th century with a focus on the Anglo-Saxon states with the idea of recapturing the, the uh, belligerent colony of the United States, which basically was was in, in Rhodes's will. He says it by, by name, and that becomes a mandate. And it interfaces very closely with the Fabian Society, which is run by a bunch of, again, kind of sociopathic um, elitist eugenicists like... Uh, Beatrice Webb, Sidney Webb, uh, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells later on, a student of T.H. Huxley, um, Lord Balfour, Halford Mackinder also are, are both leading members of this thing. And, um, you know, Mackinder is, is a co or is a director of the London School of Economics, which is sort of the Fabian Society school where they indoctrinate young youth, young talent, and then reposition them into positions of uh, influence. Uh the round table is primarily operating out of Oxford and that's their indoctrination um, zone. And they're providing things like the Rhodes scholarship, which is provided to, you know, I think it's something like about 7,000 Americans have been processed through Oxford, through Rhodes scholarships over the, the last 120 years. And it was overseen by a Canadian who had been an heir to the, uh, the old family compact uh, that was targeted by, by William, um, Lyne Mackenzie, the revolutionary in the 1830s who called this the family, you know, so that was the family compact, the, the encrusted lower oligarchy of Canada that was beholden always to the older, older family bloodlines located in Britain, which um, were basically the, the United Empire loyalists who refused to be a part of the American Revolution and settled instead to British, British sanctuary territory in Canada. That's why we have English speakers here like, like us in Canada. Um, so <clears throat> the um, these two think tanks worked very closely together um, to maintain the strategy of keeping Canada as a wedge and, a, and an, an, an operation where not just Lincoln was killed, but even later on, Kennedy was assassinated through operations run out of British uh, operations in Canada, the Permindex Corporation. That's another story, though. And um, in 1909, um, Lord Milner had commissioned, had paid for Lord Halford Mackinder to quit his job at the London School of Economics. So Halford Mackinder, being a, a leading Fabian, um, quit his job at the Fabian LSE um, at the behest of Milner. And together, both he and Milner sent, were sent for uh, a, a very long project in Canada. Milner was here um, and, and in eight, uh, 1908, 1909, so was Mackinder. And they were formulating a strategy on how to create a synthetic nationalism. Um, and Milner is very explicit in a uh, in a letter to I think it was Leo Amory, uh, one of his fellow roundtable controllers, that of the three scenarios going forward. And keep in mind, this is Wilfred Laurier as the prime minister. Um, he is a Lincoln admirer um, who had been originally part of Les Rouges, the grouping that had fought against Confederation in Quebec in uh, the 1860s and early 70s. Um, so. Uh, Wilfred Laurier was oh, sort of a closet Republican 
um, who yeah. despised the British, but he often had to play the game because it was not a very safe time in, in, in history to be a Republican leader disruptive of British grand strategy. There were, there were many leaders getting assassinated if they were doing that, like McKinley and many others. Um, so uh, Milner says of the three scenarios for the future of Canada, um, greater union of Canada with the United States, which is the greatest threat, a closer integration with the British Empire, which is the preferred one, but the least, like, least likely, and um, Canadian nationalism. He said the greatest threat is the first, integration with the USA. And of course, he's referring to the, the American Customs Union, which Wilfrid Laurier had been pushing to create a, a protective tariff around Canada and the USA to stop for British dumping of cheap goods with an internal improvement uh, dynamic inside, very different from NAFTA, by the way. The, um, that was the greatest threat. The, the, while, while preferred, it was not likely to get Canada at the time under Laurier to integrate with the British because Laurier was a nationalist and, and fought against um, being a pawn. So he said, instead, the Canadians are bumptuously unaware and jo wonderfully ignorant of the longer forces of history that are shaping them. And so we should shape a synthetic Canadian nationalism to give them a sense of uh, superiority to the Americans and just make that a social uh, engineering focal point, which they do. And that becomes one of the key driving objectives over the next 60 or so years, all the way up until our fake uh, flag was created with a maple leaf that doesn't mean anything in 18, uh, 1963. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff has been manipulated. To keep Canada from uh, working with a better USA, and I'm and here I'm talking about the USA of people like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, John F. Kennedy, and it was only when Kennedy died that the U.S. became increasingly um, a tool controlled more and more by a deep state operation, a fifth column embedded within its own its soul, which made it act more and more like an agency of evil instead of being a representative of ind true independence. And from that standpoint, uh, people have gotten very confused. Yeah, well, same thing in, in Canada. It seems like the same time frames uh, took place. I mean, the, the, we had the fall of uh, uh, Diefenbaker, who was pursuing a, a different path. And then we end up with the, the, uh, the Pearson era. And uh, that uh, you know, ended up with a sort of a magnified version of that, uh, that uh, the, the the, the vision of the uh, the Vincent Massey's and and all of the, that cast. I want to yeah. just move move up to uh, into the modern era now. I mean, our, with with Trudeau in charge, uh, and I'm not saying he's doing it all by himself, but I mean, if we crossed into an even a new era, were we afflicting the notion of Canadian sovereignty? I mean, be, be a, a kind of an acceleration. I mean, certainly we see with the, the pandemic and, and and such but uh, i mean ha, has this vi has our vision of an independent canada quote unquote changed oh yeah i mean it, it's um the, the, i i have a section on my website um called canada's potential eurasian future a vision for the 21st century and beyond to try to get across to people what a vision a proper vision in the trajectory of people like Sir Isaac, or not Sir Isaac, uh, by Isaac Buchanan, who was a, a friend of Lincoln, who was ousted from power in 1863, or Laurier, who was ousted in power by the roundtable movement that ran a coup in, in 1911, or Diefenbaker, who was, again, ousted by a roundtable run coup. Uh, people like the governor of the Bank of, of Canada, James Coyne, was a part of this uh, round, and he was a Rhodes Scholar, 
was part of part of that 1963 operation to oust Diefenbaker and undermine his his broader vision for a truly creative, productive uh, Canada with, you know, a, with an, a pro-development orientation for the North. All of these things were disrupted. Um, so what I try to do, and there's a lot of other stories of great Canadians who have been almost completely wiped out of the history records, and I try to not just bring to light what they were doing, but also how the spirit and way of thinking that they were operating in, in terms of their idea of utilizing the National Bank of Canada for a tool of credit development with concrete projects that could heal and and build us out of the 50 plus years of atrophy and self-destruction we did to ourselves under this consumer society, you know, post-industrial cult, how this could totally transform things in a good way. Um, so I lay out about nine major projects uh, that could be shovel ready even tomorrow and that there is support for a lot of this stuff like the Mid-Canada De Development Corridor to open up the north. Um, there's There's been a lot of activity around that that is not even very well understood. Um, engineering feas feasibility projects have done this and it's co completely compatible with the sort of project, the way of thinking that's arisen out of Eurasia with the Belt and Road Initiative, the New Silk Road of China, its integration yes. into the Polar Silk Road um, as an alternative to militarization of the Arctic, which is the other way that, that we could go and we are going unfortunately right now is to militarize the Arctic instead in pre preparation for war, and that's not good. Well, so, just, yeah. yeah. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because the, the Belt Railway lines that, that you described as as putting an end to, to empire, a kind of empire, and now the new Silk Road is being developed. Is This, this is a China-run initiative, the, the same strategy as the, uh, the transportation belts of the 19th century. Um, wh why would Canada uh, benefit in this new era. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, it's all premised around an idea that the behavior of money is not something to worship or to speculate upon as it is in the uh, the Western mode of thinking over the past 50 years. That's part of why we've self-destroyed is we've thought of money as the source of an economy instead of it being a tool for a higher good. Now, when you look at the way economics business is operating out of Eurasia with the BRI as a great example, its capacity to build large-scale infrastructure, and I'm, here I'm talking five to 20-year projects are being built right now, much longer vision, and the behavior of money's uh, uh, existence is tied entirely to the real economy, not speculation on fake debts. You would go to jail and prison for doing the type of activity you you are trained to do if you're going to work in Bay Street in Ontario or, or Wall Street or the city of London. So it's it's all based on the idea that the real value is what are you building for the future? Are you making things worse for human life or better? Are you building things that are, you know, increasing your productivity or decreasing it like the, you know, solar panels of the and windmills of the Green New Deal, which are just destroying our power to sustain life. That's a what you see in in, in Eurasia is a very different way of thinking. So if we could revive and tap back into that source that we once had access to, that we've forgotten how to do, we could have a basis upon which working with China, which is a big growth market, you know, we would have a basis upon which we could then re-stimulate our destroyed manufacturing and factories. Um, we'd be able to open up, obviously, things like China has, has offered, as well as Russia, different opportunities for us to collaborate on Arctic development under a win-win paradigm. This idea that we're not in a in a race for diminishing returns, which is sort of the British unipolar, the Anglo-American unipolar, you know, ideology is that you always have to 
race for diminishing returns for for everyone in a in a world of tension um the this eurasian idea is very different it's win-win the, there's it's not a zero-sum game you can always create more energy by introducing new new discoveries new inventions new ideas into the mix and make the pie bigger and also more vitamin rich not just you know fight for crumbs so that's these are all things that are an, a, a benefit on a, on a military level to increase security and trust that needs to be built fast before we completely shut down the last I mean, we've blown up a lot of diplomatic bridges. I don't know if this is repairable. I hope it is. But then to re undo, undo the 50 plus years of self-destruction we did to ourselves by going into a consumer society cult, uh, we definitely need that way of thinking in a more healthy, long-term way that you see active in Eurasia, which has 150 country, or 146 countries to varying degrees um, already signed up to the BRI framework. So... That's sort of the survivor's club. It, re it also represents different ancient civilizations that don't want to commit willful sac sacrifice on some altar at this point of a, of a great reset. So, um, yeah, we should want that. We should want to have a future, too, and we should want to cooperate, I think. And, and I think most people, if you ask them <laughs> if they care about, you know, uh, supporting Nazis in Ukraine or, or anything like that or, or actually being able to feed their kids and have a future that that is stable and good, they would they would pick the second. <clears throat> Well, that's uh well before you go, Matt, uh, you you put out a magazine uh, uh, once every couple of months, right? Well, I used to. I the magazines I, I stopped doing because it's too energy intensive. But there's still back issues of the Canadian Patriot. Uh, there were 26 issues that we did, but now uh, everything is on the website uh, and my Substack, um, which is sort of my bread and butter. And also my books. So I just pu published a series of three books with my wife Cynthia, who co-wrote some of that with me called The Clash of the Two Americas that people could get off of my website, um, CanadianPatriot.org, and, and they're all available uh, for purchase on, unfortunately, Amazon. I, I got to find a different distributor. They just mm. make it so damn easy. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, I really appreciated this uh, conversation, Matt. I mean, maybe we can uh, resume, it, resume it again uh, in, the, in, the, in a couple of months or so. Yeah, anytime. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. Anything could be unpacked uh, quite a bit. <laughs> okay, thanks. Take care, Matt. All right, you too, Michael. See ya. I've been speaking with Matthew L. J. L. Errett. He's a journalist, a lecturer, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review. That concludes our show for today and for this season. We will soon launch a series of special shows for the summer months and be back in September with new up-to-date material. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Have a happy Canada's Day, however you choose to celebrate it, and we'll see you again in the fall.